Hey, good morning. We're in John chapter 18. Um, we're in the trial of Jesus at this point. And in this passage, we see the King of Kings confronting and being confronted by uh, different characters. There's really five different characters here. You see the priest, and then a servant of the priest, and then Peter, and then Pilate, and then finally you have Barabbas, this robber who goes free precisely because Jesus doesn't. And in each case, you have these failures surrounding Jesus contrasted to his authority. Uh, Jesus has been arrested at this point. He has been bound. He has been carried away for questioning. He is at the home of, of the, the priest's father-in-law, the former priest, Annas. Peter and John are following at a distance. Peter has already denied Christ once, as has been prophesied, and now he is warming himself by the fire in the company of those who had arrested his master. So we'll start in verse 19 of chapter 18, and I'll read all the way through the chapter. It says, The high priest then asked Jesus about his disciples and his doctrine. Jesus answered him, I spoke openly to the world. I always taught in synagogue and in the temple, where the Jews always meet, and in secret I have said nothing. Why do you ask me? Ask those who have heard me what I said to them. Indeed, they know what I said. And when he had said these things, one of the officers who stood by struck Jesus with the palm of his hand, saying, Do you answer the high priest like that? Jesus answered him, If I have spoken evil, bear witness of the evil. But if well, why do you strike me? Then Annas sent him bound to Caiaphas the high priest. Now Simon Peter stood and warmed himself. Therefore they said to him, You are not also one of his disciples, are you? He denied it and said, I am not. One of the servants of the high priest, a relative of him whose ear Peter cut off, said, Do, Did I not see you in the garden with him? Peter then denied again, and immediately a rooster crowed. Then they led Jesus from Caiaphas to the praetorium, and it was early morning. But they themselves did not go into the praetorium, lest they should be defiled, but that they might eat the Passover. Pilate then went out to them and said, What accusation do you bring against this man? They answered and said to him, if he were not an evildoer, we would not have delivered him up to you. Then Pilate said to them, You take him and judge him according to your law. Therefore the Jews said to him, It is not lawful for us to put anyone to death, that the saying of Jesus might be fulfilled which he spoke, signifying by what death he would die. Then Pilate entered the praetorium again, called Jesus, and said to him, Are you the king of the Jews? Jesus answered him, Are you speaking for yourself about this, or did others tell you this concerning me? Pilate answered, Am I a Jew? Your own nation and the chief priests have delivered you to me. What have you done? Jesus answered, My kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would fight, so that I would not be delivered to the Jews. But now my kingdom is not from here. Pilate therefore said to him, Are you a king then? Jesus answered, You say rightly that I am a king. For this cause I was born, and for this cause I have come into the world, that I should bear witness to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth hears my voice. Pilate said to him, What is truth? And when he had said this, he went out again to the Jews and said to them, I find no fault in him at all. But you have a custom that I should release someone to you at the Passover. Do you therefore want me to release to you the king of the Jews? Then they all cried again, saying, Not this man, but Barabbas. Now Barabbas was a robber. Let's pray. Jesus, uh, and this passage is all upside down. Um, this this event, the the trial, your trial, your conviction, your uh, death. It's it's 
not as it should be. It seems there's these people who should worship you, who instead accuse you, and and uh, while you're innocent, you're you're being treated as a criminal. We just pray that as we encounter you and your word here, that we would be righted, that we wouldn't be part of of this backwards uh, world, but that you would right us, that we would be rightfully humbled in your presence, and that you would be rightly exalted in our hearts. Bless your church by your grace. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. So let's take this right from verse 19. Um, Jesus is standing before Annas, the high priest. He says, and it says, The high priest then asked Jesus about his disciples and his doctrine. Now, even though this is the former high priest, he's still called the high priest. It's possible that he was the real power behind the title, and though his son-in-law Caiaphas was the official high priest, he was pulling the strings. Annas was potentially pulling the strings. We aren't told the questions he asks or why he was concerned with the disciples, but the first thing that comes to my mind is, is about Peter cutting off the ear of the guy's servant. That was a servant of the priest. The high priest is asking about how violent these disciples may be, about their political aspirations, their means and methods, perhaps. And then he asks about doctrine, which is really just a fancy word for teaching. The high priest is asking Jesus what he teaches, what his theology is, what his word about God is, what he's been telling the crowds. Now we know that the real battle going on here in John chapter 18 is spiritual. Uh, Jesus knows the truth that Paul would later pen, that we wrestle not against flesh and blood. Even though flesh and blood is, is uh, showing up as an enemy here, the real enemy is spiritual. It's evil itself. This is Christ versus evil. And the enemies of God, both seen and unseen, are, are out in full force. So it should not be a surprise to us when we see strategies play out that are known to be satanic in their nature. Asking about the disciples. We know that's what Satan talks about. He is called the accuser of the brethren. He bickers with God about Job. And doctrine, the first theological argument in history, was from the serpent in the garden. Did God really say? What did God really say? Does he really love you? So here, a man who is certainly playing into the plans of Satan, playing God at the same time, questions actual God, a very God, about his followers and his teachings. In verse 20, Christ gives his answer, which is more concerned with the doctrine part of the question than the disciple part. Um, but in verse 20, it says, Jesus answered him, I spoke openly to the world. I always taught in the synagogues and in the temple, where the Jews always meet, and in secret I have said nothing. Why do you ask me? Ask those who have heard me what I said to them. Indeed, they know what I said. Now, Jesus isn't referring to his disciples here, like Peter over there warming his hands, though he would certainly fall into this category of people who had heard Jesus. It seems more likely that the room or courtyard where he is standing is filled with people who had heard him regularly and never spoken out. That the other servants of the priest, people the priest knows, people who, who now, under cover of darkness, are showing their true colors, had before received the word with gladness. But now, the, the gospel is being choked out. So Jesus, glancing around him, is seeing people that had heard what he said, and he says, ask him, ask him. Ask them what I said, knowing that they couldn't form any sort of charge against him based on his teachings. Now, it's important for Jesus' trial that he says this. And it's also important uh, for John writing this to address the common heresies of his day. It's important during the trial because everything that is being done this night is super shady and backwards. 
This is not a fair trial. It's not done in the daylight. There are no legitimate charges, and of course there never will be. An innocent man is being removed because of who he threatened, not because of any crime committed. So for Jesus to say, everything I did was in the open, I taught in the synagogues, I taught in the temple, I've had a very public ministry, I haven't said anything in secret, he is drawing a contrast between the way he does things and the way they are doing things. He's always establishing his innocence and showing the weakness of any accusation that they might bring against him. We know that one of the reasons Jesus hasn't been arrested already is because the leaders feared the crowds and Christ's public ministry was completely above board, without blame. His public ministry was a hindrance to his enemy's plans. But there's another reason John might include this particular part of the trial. Early in the history of Christianity, the truth of the gospel was twisted a number of different ways by heresies and liars. One heresy that showed up early on was a form of Gnosticism. Now, you've probably heard, I'm sure you've heard, of the Gnostics at one time or another. Um, they were a complicated group. It was a very complicated system of spirituality, and it's usually oversimplified. And uh, today's no different. We don't have time to go into all the different things the Gnostics believed, but one of the characteristics of the particular brand of Gnosticism that existed during John's own lifetime was a sort of mystery religion whose adherents claimed that they had super top secret special revelation from Jesus stuff, you know, with codes and secret handshakes and, and stuff like that. Um, and this is the same in many cults, right? You can know certain things, but the, once you get inside, then they say you'll know the rest of it, and then you'll know some of the secrets, but then you got to level up, and you'll know more of the secrets. So this is what the Gnostics of early Christianity had started saying. They said, if you wanted to know what Jesus really meant, you've got to be on the inside. You've got to join our club. And John writes against these kinds of attitudes, both in his gospel and in his letters, John includes this statement from Jesus on purpose, where Jesus says, in effect, there are no secrets. He literally says, in secret, I have said nothing. The gospel is not meant to be a secret. In fact, it's supposed to be the opposite. It's supposed to be the most uh, out loud public message that there is. And, and we must be careful not to let our curiosity of or our fine tastes in esoteric theology ever get in the way of the simple, clear message of the gospel. God loves you. Jesus died for your sins. Whoever believes in him will not perish, but have everlasting life. Jesus said in public, whoever has the Son has life. He said in public, loudly, come unto me, all you who are thirsty. So this, this wasn't secret stuff. Jesus speaks very clearly here, and there's not a hint of groveling, of fear, or begging in his voice. I'll remind you of the first part of this chapter, of what we've already seen. Jesus is under attack. There's no question about it. But he is also completely in charge. Christ speaks, and the people fall over. He lays his, hand, his own life down, and the time will come when he will pick it up again. The authority of Jesus has been on display for his whole ministry. Of course, who is this man that the wind and the waves obey him? The answer, clearly someone who has divine authority. When they heard his teachings, people were astonished because he did not speak as the scribes, but rather he spoke as one having 
authority. That hasn't changed. That authority is seen here with a capital A. Only now he's before a judge. Speaking like this in what basically amounts to a courtroom sets him in clear opposition to the authority figure in the room, the high priest. People would surely be accustomed to a measure of deference being paid to the man, Annas, the high priest. They've already tried to catch Jesus off his guard. You know, they sent the mob for him. They've arrested him at night. Now they're interrogating him. They're probably expecting at least a little bit of groveling. And when Jesus speaks with authority instead, they take it as disrespect. Verse 22 says, And when he had said these things, one of the officers who stood by Jesus struck with the palm, struck Jesus with the palm of his hand, saying, Do you answer the high priest like that? Verse 23, Jesus answered him, If I have spoken evil, bear witness of the evil. But if well, why do you strike me? Then Annas sent him bound to Caiaphas, the high priest. Now it's likely that the physical violence towards Jesus had already begun in the garden. And uh, on the way to Annas' house, that uh, you know, this mob showed up with weapons. They would have been disappointed if they didn't get to use them at least a little bit. And they were a mob after all, and there's a certain tone that goes with that. Uh, but, but this is the first mention in Scripture of the physical violence towards Jesus. This unnamed man strikes Jesus open-handed and tells him effectively, don't talk like that to this very important person. Now, of course, every offense towards Jesus from here on out is a tragedy worthy of our revulsion and mourning. The, the crucifixion is the worst crime humanity has ever committed. And perhaps it would be right to focus in on the horror, the crime, the sin of, of man striking God, but you also need to see and considering how evil it is, how ridiculous it is, too. And I don't mean that it's funny, but, but consider the extreme backwards nature of what is happening here. Why does this man strike Jesus? Because Jesus has somehow slighted a great authority figure. Now, the truth is, he hasn't. And that's what Jesus will say. He hasn't done anything wrong. But this man is willing to strike Christ because... Christ, because God would dare challenge this authority figure called a high priest. It highlights the ludicrous nature of the entire spectacle before us, that God would be on trial, that God would be challenged, that God could be struck, and that man would consider himself just to challenge this God. C.S. Lewis wrote an essay about man's confusion where God is concerned called God in the Dock. And he means a dock like a witness box in a courtroom. Mankind believes against all good sense that he is both attorney and judge, while God is the defendant that must give man a reasonable account, a reasonable answer for his divine behavior. That's not the way it is. God is judge. If you want to continue the metaphor, uh, it's not wrong to say that he is judge, jury, and executioner. And it is because we know this that we rejoice all the more that he is merciful, kind, and slow to anger. But again, consider the backwards nature of this man's situation. He will slap Christ in order to defend the honor of the father-in-law of the high priest. Now this man, Annas, doesn't actually have any legal authority. He doesn't 
He does not have any moral authority in this situation where the illegal trial is taking place. But of course, the mind of this guard, his, in the mind of this unnamed guard, his honor, the honor of the priest, must be defended, and the innocent Christ must be silenced. It's completely backwards, but listen, this is not a strange exception to man's state of mind. It is the rule. Unredeemed man is in this place all the time. We set up our own authority, our own philosophy, our own belief system, and, and then when God's word challenges that system, it is God that must be questioned and silenced and judged. This is what sinful man has done since the beginning. Jesus speaks to Jerusalem, What prophet have you not killed? From Abel to Zechariah, A to Z. Right? The guard's defensiveness is our own. The priest was his idol, but we have idols too. And when Jesus says, If I have done wrong, charge me. We again see his confidence as well as his innocence. Jesus says, Justify your actions. Now in a courtroom, who asks who to justify their actions. Well, we see here who is really in charge. Jesus is in charge here. This entire ordeal must be thought of in reverse of what it seems. It appears to many that Jesus is the victim. He is not, though he suffers like one. He is conqueror. It appears that Jesus is on trial. He is not, though he allows himself to be taken through these steps. He is the judge, and humanity is on trial. How does humanity behave when it is being tested, when it is being judged by the highest moral being in the universe? Answer? Mankind slaps him with the palm of his hand. And his accusers are silenced. Anna simply sends Jesus off to Caiaphas, He's someone else's problem now. We don't get that part of the story. John doesn't record what happened when Jesus was with Caiaphas, possibly because he wasn't there for it, wasn't a witness to those events. Uh, but we're not done with this first location yet. While Jesus is being tried by the priest, or rather, while the court is being tried by Jesus, Peter is also being tested. I'll remind you before we read the next few verses that Peter in this chapter serves as a counterpoint, counterpoint to Christ's faithfulness. Christ's faithfulness is set against Peter's failure. Christ in control, Christ's in control authority is contrasted by Peter's frantic impulsiveness. I'll also remind you of John chapter 13, several chapters back in John 13, 33, Jesus is speaking to the disciples in the upper room and he says, little children, I shall be with you a little while longer. You will seek me, and as I said to the Jews, where I am going, you cannot come. So now I say to you, then in chapter 13, 36, Simon Peter says to him, Lord, where are you going? Jesus answered him, where I am going, you cannot follow me now, but you shall follow me afterward. Peter said to him, Lord, why can I not follow you now? I will lay down my life for your sake. Jesus answered him, will you lay down your life for my sake? Most assuredly, I say to you, the rooster shall not crow till you have denied me three times. Well, Luke, Luke includes another detail. And I especially appreciate this. In Luke chapter 22, same setting, the upper room. Luke twenty-two thirty-one. 31, it says, And the Lord said, Simon, Simon, indeed, Satan has asked for you, that he may sift you as wheat. 
But I have prayed for you that your faith should not fail, and that you and when you have returned to me, strengthen your brethren. But he said to him, Lord, I am ready to go with you both to prison and to death. And then he said, I tell you, Peter, the rooster shall not crow this day before you will deny three times that you know me. So when we read of Peter's denial, we can't forget. This isn't a surprise to Jesus. Jesus prayed for Peter that he would recover. And he promised it. He says, when you have returned. He know, I know you're going to leave. But when you have returned, I have work for you to do. And we'll read about that at the end of John's Gospel. We know that Peter will return. But here in the midst of Peter's failure, let's not forget that Christ, who is faithful, is still in charge. In verse 25 of our, of our text, it says, Now Simon Peter stood and warmed himself. Therefore they said to him, You are not also one of his disciples, are you? He denied it and said, I am not. One of the servants of the high priest, a relative of him whose ear Peter cut off, said, Did I not see you in the garden with him? Peter then denied again, and immediately a rooster crowed. Now, the first denial happened in, in verse 17. The second and third are here. Many commentators have noted Peter's gradual slide towards this third and final denial. He began by following at a distance, and then he ends up warming himself with the people that arrested Jesus. We see a, a Psalm 1-like progression of one who walks with the ungodly. You know, not close to Jesus. And he, he now stands with sinners. And the final step is that of sitting down with the scornful, which is something Peter's delivered from by this rooster who jogs his memory. Luke, again, fills in the details here that I believe are important. Luke 22, verse 61 says, And the Lord turned and looked at Peter. Then Peter remembered the word of the Lord, how he had said to him, Before the rooster crows, you will deny me three times. So Peter went out and wept bitterly. Now, now John leaves for now. He leaves Peter for now. And then deals with him later in the book in a beautiful restoration story. But let's consider that detail from Luke and take hope. Guys, we, we all know that there are more times than we'd care to admit when we are Peter. And I don't, I don't just mean here. I don't mean that you all deny Christ all the time. Uh, but, but we think that our faith is stronger than sometimes it is. And throughout the Gospels, we relate to Peter for his failures, because in him we see our own failures. We see a reflection of us. Well, well, look for yourself here. If you can weep for sin, then you are in a good place. We know that Peter ends up restored. And yes, this chapter, this whole setting, it's a tragedy, but it's one that Jesus foresaw, foreknew, planned for in prayer. And Peter, we know, is restored because of Christ's victory. In this whole section of the scripture, in this entire sordid tale, this is the only thing Peter does right. And as such, it can serve as an example to us. Peter wept when weeping was the only appropriate thing to do. To weep for your sins is not a bad thing. Yes, Peter is ashamed, but to be shameless would be worse. Call shameful things what they are. Have some shame. Show some remorse. Weep for your sins. Jesus turned and looked at Peter. You know, we think sometimes of this as an I told you so look, but he didn't need that, did he? The rooster did that for him. When Jesus looks at you, how does he look at you? Is it the I told you so glance? I don't think so. It's a look of mercy. It is the, the goodness of God that leads us to repentance. And Peter would be drawn towards repentance. Peter goes out and weeps, but he will be restored. Meanwhile, Jesus continues 
on his way. Verse 28. They led Jesus to, from Caiaphas to the Praetorium, and it was early morning. But they themselves did not go into the Praetorium, lest they should be defiled, but that they might eat the Passover. Pilate then went out to them and said, What accusation do you bring against this man? They answered and said to him, If he were not an evildoer, we would not have delivered him up to you. Then Pilate said to them, You take him and judge him according to your law. Therefore the Jews said to him, It is not lawful for us to put anyone to death, that the saying of Jesus might be fulfilled which he spoke, signifying by what death he would die. The kind of death he would die is crucifixion. Uh, this is prophesied in detail in Psalm 22, and referenced in John 3 as well as being I mean, Jesus being lifted up. There's not that many... Uh, methods of execution in that day that would lift up to the condemned. So, so this passage explains how Jesus, a Jew, being condemned by Jews, would come to die in this Roman fashion. Early Friday morning, Jesus is taken from his second trial to his third, from Caiaphas to Pilate. Pilate, Pontius Pilate, we'll talk about him more uh, next week also. He's in chapter, he features heavily in chapter 19. But um, Pilate is not a good guy. And, and he wasn't good at what he's supposed to do either. Uh, Jerusalem was not governed effectively under his reign. Uh, it was not, uh, Jerusalem remained a, a politically explosive and unstable place while Pilate was ruling. And Rome had essentially told him, you've got one more chance and that's it. So, so he knows that he could get fired real quick. And it turns out that Rome, Caligula specifically, would eventually remove him and kindly invite him to commit suicide. Um, and, and again, we see these these notes, these details that are there to show us how backwards this whole deal is. The Jews who are bringing charges against Jesus don't go into the praetorium. Well, first of all, they don't go to a righteous judge. They go to Pilate because he's the best they've got. But when they go to him, they don't enter into the praetorium, the Roman outpost headquarters, because they might be defiled. They still want their lamb dinner. Now, you can't miss this. There is a mob that is trying to get Jesus murdered. That's been clear all along. Murder has been in their heart. Jesus has been thrown out the window. Or sorry, justice. Jesus would be crucified. Justice has been thrown out the window. Moral law has been thrown out the window. Don't even think about love, mercy, and things like that. All the things that Jesus calls the weightier matters of the law have been completely disregarded, but the idea of being ritually defiled by merely setting foot into Gentile territory, this is still unthinkable. This is how far things have come. Murder is fine. Talking, taking, talking to that guy, that, that's not fine. Bearing false witness is fine. Standing in a building with a Gentile, not fine. The tone of the legal proceedings is equally ridiculous. Pilate asks for the charges. That's not a bad question to ask. He's doing his job here. Um, you know, they're wanting him to rule on a case. The person ruling should probably have some details. But this is their answer. Well, we wouldn't bring you someone innocent, would we? Right? That is not a charge. And Pilate knows it. And he says, okay, if you think he's so bad, then you deal with it. And now we get to the reason for the whole thing. The Jews say, but we want to kill him. And we're not allowed to kill him. You see, the Romans had taken away the Jews' right to use capital punishment. They're not allowed to put anyone to death. Which makes Stephen's murder in the book of Acts that much notable. It was illegal. Uh, so now the people are asking Pilate to kill this person for them. In verse 33, Then Pilate entered the praetorium again, called Jesus, and said to him, Are you the king of the Jews? 
Jesus answered him, Are you speaking for yourself about this, or did others tell you this concerning me? Pilate answered, Am I a Jew? Your own nation and the chief priests have delivered you to me. What have you done? Jesus answered, My kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would fight, so that I should not be delivered to the Jews. But now my kingdom is not from here. Pilate therefore said to him, Are you a king then? Jesus answered, You say rightly that I am a king. For this cause I was born, and for this cause I have come into the world, that I should bear witness to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth hears my voice. Pilate said to him, What is truth? And when he had said this, he went out again to the Jews and said to them, I find no fault in him at all. Now, Jesus actually goes to Pilate twice. Um, this is a combination of two of the visits. Um, in, in between the first and the second, he goes to visit Herod. But John combines the details of both meetings with Pilate here. And we don't get the, the story of Herod in John's Gospel. Um, so by now, uh, Pilate is involved in the case, and he's, he's heard more details. So he asks, are you the king of the Jews? This is a political question, and of course, it matters a great deal. It decides whether or not Jesus is a threat to the well-ordered society the Romans were trying to maintain. But Jesus, ever in charge, says, who's asking? He answers a question with a question, which is a real power move. Now, this isn't Jesus just being snarky. It really matters. If Pilate is asking the question, then the question could be rounded out to mean, are you a political military figure attempting to overthrow the reign of Caesar? That's what kings would do, after all. But if the question was really just a testament of Caiaphas, or was put to him by the chief priests, the question was really, are you the fulfillment of the Son of David, the Messiah, the Savior of the Jews? To the first question, the answer at this time would be no. Jesus says, I mean, it's not of this world. No, I'm not, I'm, not, I'm not fighting against Caesar at this point. But the answer to the second, are you the Messiah, are you the Son of David, the answer would have to be yes. So it matters Who's asking the question? But Pilate says, am I a Jew? And he kind of scoffs at this. And he ensures us that he has no interest in messianic topics. So Jesus explains. He says, okay, so you're talking about things politically. So he explains, my kingdom is not political. My kingdom is not of this world. And I, I always say uh, here that for 2,000 years, Christians have been trying to prove Jesus wrong. We're really interested in kingdom building and politics. And that's never really worked out well for us. But Jesus explains things clearly. His kingdom is not of this world. It is otherworldly. His kingdom is heavenly. Pilate doesn't care about heavenly things, only worldly, which is why he fixates on this idea of king. He says, you are a king then. Jesus says, yes. He says, you, you say rightly that I am a king. For this cause I was born, and for this cause I have come into the world, that I should bear witness to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth hears my voice. Now, 1 Timothy 6, verse 13, Paul writes and says, Christ Jesus, who witnessed the good confession before Pontius Pilate. Well, this is the good confession. Here it is. He says he is a king. Kings are born for their role. And Jesus says, for this purpose I came. He is clearly born to his. And he, he says his role as heavenly king is to bear witness to the truth. Contrasting once more all the bearing of false witness that is going on in his multiple trials. And when Jesus says here, everyone who is 
of the truth. Here's my voice. We see a parallel to his statement that his kingdom is not of this world. Do you see that this world is full of lies? It's full of liars. It is under the sway of the wicked one, Satan, who is the father of lies. His servants are not there defending him. But Jesus came to do this one thing, to bear witness to the truth. Now, there's four characters so far. There's a fifth coming. There are four characters in this story that are struggling against the truth. You have the priest thinking that he is in the place of God, but imitating the behavior of Satan. That's a lie. He's living a lie. You have the guard trying to protect his lowercase g God by attacking the innocent, but instead shows himself to be an enthusiastic enemy of God. He's not defending virtue or honor, but the opposite. He's living a lie. You have Peter, who's playing it safe, protecting himself, his life, his dignity, his reputation. Peter told himself earlier this evening, I would die for Jesus. I would go to prison for Jesus. And then he reveals himself to have more in common with Judas than with Jesus. Peter is living a lie. And he, he actually does lie. He says, I never knew him. And finally, you've got this Roman governor, Pontius Pilate, who thinks he's wise, he thinks he's a philosopher, able to grapple with the big questions in life like truth. But in reality, we will see him uh, play out to be a pragmatist who will let truth be murdered. Each of these people are in place, in a place where they would protect themselves and their own at the cost of the life of God. This gospel confronts us in a violent way. Because we realize that there's no one for us to associate with other than these people who struggle against the truth. Unless we look to Barabbas. Pilate said, what is truth? And when he had said this, he went out to the Jews and said to them, I find no fault in him at all. Verse 39. But you have a custom that I should release someone to you at the Passover. Do you therefore want me to release to you the king of the Jews? Then they all cried again, saying, not this man, but Barabbas. Now Barabbas was a robber. You can see the, uh, the moral decline of the society around here, that it's, it's customary at holidays to just let prisoners go free. That's a weird kind of system of justice. You see Pilate struggling to, to do what might be more right. Eventually he's unable to do this. We see the upside-down nature of the trial of Jesus continue to, to play out. Um, and, and it takes us to an upside-down posture. The only, you know, the, the only person that you should try and associate with in this story is Barabbas, the robber who goes free because Jesus didn't. Christ took the place of the sinner. The gospel is being played out here in the sight of everyone present. The story is full of people trying to stay standing in one way or another, but the gospel instead confronts us and calls us to kneel, to humble ourselves in the sight of the Lord. And this is the only worthwhile response to this whole passage, is to humble ourselves, to kneel, to say, Lord, you're, you're great, you're awesome, you're holy, you shouldn't have been struck, I should, you shouldn't have been arrested, I should, you shouldn't have been tried and condemned, I should, but you took my place and I, the sinner, goes free because of what you've done for me. Let us rejoice around this humbling truth. Let's pray. Jesus, as we consider this, we see that you are in charge, that your authority is great, um, that you are both good and great. You are 
um, and your goodness and greatness are for us. You have let us go, Lord. We do not deserve the salvation that you've purchased us. Um, but now we, we humble ourselves. We put ourselves in our rightful place, uh, on our knees before you, recognizing that you are good and great. Jesus, we love you. We worship you. It's, in, it's for your glory that we pray. Amen.